Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Inclusion Hub podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Sam Prue, and this episode is a little bit different. This one's going to be a wrap up of kind of all of the things that we've covered, as well as a wrap up of kind of all the wonderful things, the ups and downs that we've had in accessibility over this year. And it's also going to be a little bit of a transition. The way we're going to handle this is I am uh, in conversation with Jeffrey, who's uh, here in the studio with me. And uh, we're going to be chatting about this season, chatting about the year in accessibility. And then we're going to be handing things over. Because what we're doing after this episode is we've got a great series of interviews lined up for you with all of the Inclusion Hub partners who have been the founding partners of the inclusionhub.com website, as well as the sponsors of this podcast. And uh, we're going to be talking to folks at each of those organizations about the great things that they're doing in accessibility. Jeffrey, I think you've already had uh, the opportunity to engage with some of those folks and, and do some of those those interviews. Is that uh, I think that's a pretty good summary of what we got coming up uh, over the next few yeah, episodes. Yeah, that is a that is a very good summary. Yes, I've I've spoken with each of our founding partners and gotten to hear a little bit more about their stories and their own perspectives on a lot of these issues that you've been covering with all the fantastic guests that you've had on the podcast so far. Yeah, there have been so many incredible guests that we've had this year and folks that I've had the opportunity to work with outside of the podcast a little bit and that we've worked with here and 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 partnered with at Fable, you know, as as part of our our Fable Pathways that we run, which is a program that offers training and upskilling to people with disabilities. We had the opportunity to actually work with Judy Human, who has appeared on this podcast, and uh she put together uh, a course for us on on really how to do self-advocacy as as a person with a disability. And that can be, you know, more challenging than it appears, right? You you really do need to advocate for yourself as someone with a disability. And that's something that, as we all know, Judy is such an expert on and has been doing for, you know, decades and decades, as we've heard here. So uh, certainly if you are someone who's, who's interested in that, uh, whether you're a person with a disability or not, and you'd like to hear more about advocacy and stuff, um, absolutely check that out over at uh, fablepathways.com. Sorry, I'm done. I'm done. Done plugging the <laughs> my own employer here, but I really wanted to bring that up because it was such a such a great experience to, to get to work with with Judy outside of just, you know, the podcast. Yeah, you mentioned Judy Human, and, and again, I just think of all the guests that have been on here listening to who you've interviewed, Jennifer Killen Chaffins, mm-hmm. Eileen Meyerson, Yuta Trevoranis, Laura mm-hmm. Kalbag, just a lot of fantastic, I mean, really big, big figures in these spaces around accessibility. Mm-hmm. And I would love to hear, as well as I think many of the listeners would love to hear a little bit more behind the scenes of what it's been like for you to talk with them and to hear their story, as well as t- describe for us maybe some of the the technology that you use to help record these podcasts and interview all these phenomenal people. Yeah, this podcast is a little bit different for me because a lot of the podcasts that I do are more the style of this episode that everyone's listening to today. A little bit more spontaneous, a little bit more off the cuff. And that's a great way to do storytelling, and it's a great way to be authentic, and it's a great way to draw people in. But it's not always the best way 
to tell stories that have a really powerful through line and to do some of these stories around web accessibility and around the history of where we've been and where we've come justice. And so this podcast has has been a different experience for me in that I've been working with the great folks uh, at, at Moria Creative, yourself and, and Chris and some of the other folks behind the scenes, to put this together and to do all the editing. And what that has meant is that while I absolutely love and, and agree with all the things I'm saying, in order to make the story as powerful as it needs to be, things have been a little bit more scripted than I've ever done before. And so that was a whole learning process for me, because as someone who's completely blind, I'm using a screen reader. And so when I'm looking at a script and thinking, okay, I want to I want to say this exact thing in this exact way, I experimented with using Braille. I have a Braille display here on my desk. But the thing about Braille displays is that they are only one 40 character line of text at a time. And I found that that was just too slow for me to, you know, effectively read things back. And so what I've actually been doing is using the NVDA screen reader here on, on Windows and sort of listening to it, read the script to me and, and reciting it back mm -hmm. as I go. And so as you can imagine, right, hearing a voice in your head and then saying the thing has, has been a learning experience. It's, it's something that I, I think I've, I've done pretty well, uh, but it took some adjusting and some figuring out, like, how fast do I want the screen reader voice to read so that I can keep up with it and not go too fast? And how do I want to do line breaks? And how do I want to mark it up to make it easier for me to listen to and then, and then recite back? And so in some of the episodes, uh, you've, you've sort of heard the, uh, the clicking away of the mechanical keyboard, you know, as I've, as I'm, as I'm consulting, uh, I know so the producers and editors have have done their best to to edit some of that out, but it's it's definitely a thing that uh, that has been here and that's been ongoing and that's been with us. And you know, one of the takeaways for me as we talk to all these folks is that whether you are someone who is who is new to accessibility or someone who like like a lot of the folks that we've had the, the privilege of talking to has been doing accessibility for forty years, nobody's sitting on their laurels, right? Some of these mm -hmm. folks could really, you know, get away with with talking about past glory, right? And all the, the, the incredible things that they did in the 70s, 80s, and 90s to bring us to where we are today. But nobody's doing that. Everybody's still in it and still pushing forward and still moving things forward. And I mean, it's it's just so, so inspiring, right? When I think about someone like Judy, like, I hope I have as much uh, energy and drive left in me when I'm in my 80s. Yeah, I, I, I share that same awe of just continuing to advocate and push forward. And as you're talking, and I'm, I'm wondering to myself, I would love to hear some of your own story with becoming more of an activist in this mm. space, which this is something that hasn't really come out yet, being as you've been interviewing other sort of titans in the disability community. But I would love to hear maybe a little bit more of what your path was like from living with disability to really stepping out, not just advocating for yourself, but for others in a really significant way as you do right now. I mean, it's been a long and winding road uh, to sort of quote the Paul McCartney song. <laughs> um, <laughs> I I didn't start out in accessibility or or even assuming that I would necessarily be in, in accessibility. As all of you know, of course, I was incredibly privileged to to grow up with a blind father and and to have mentorship in that way that was 
you know, really important and, and influential. And, and my father worked as a programmer at IBM. And of course, he had to be an advocate for himself as, you know, sort of the, one of the first blind folks to do that. But he never worked directly in accessibility for a lot of his career because, I mean, in the 70s and 80s, accessibility wasn't a thing, right? And I mean, every kid, you grew up wanting to be your father, right? So, so my, my career plan for myself was always that I was going to, you know, go into computer science and be a computer programmer. And, um, I got into high school and math, advanced mathematics just did not happen for me. Some of it is because I, I do not have that natural talent. And some of it is because it's taught very graphically, right? It's graphing calculators and it's, it's all this, this visual stuff that the resources didn't exist in the school system at the time to adapt for me. Neither did necessarily the, the knowledge and talent of how to best adapt this stuff to, to, to teach it to people who are blind. That has changed. There's a lot of great folks in the education sector doing amazing, incredible work on, on how to make this happen, uh, in a way that is easier and, and better. But that wasn't, wasn't my experience. So I figured I would, I would, uh, go to university and I would do my second love, which, which was journalism. Hmm. And I got into journalism and was, was doing the, the J school thing right around the time. Maybe you remember in the early 2000s when basically all of the papers, lost all subscribers and the internet was now a thing and mm-hmm. and there was this kind of massive recession in the media landscape there just wasn't work there and so i spent like a year pounding the pavement giving out resumes doing interviews looking for work and i found the job search and the that interviewing and and putting yourself out there and and trying to get work my personal experience of that was that it was so demeaning and so depressing I said to myself, I'm never going to do this again, because there's only so many times you can show up in a room or you can show up to an interview and, and you get this, oh, he, he's blind. Why is he even here? Right? Like there's, there's only so many times you can go through that experience and you can not only justify your ability to do the job, but like justify your own existence and your ability to do anything before it really has a, a profound effect on, on your self-image, on, on your happiness on on your emotional and mental well-being and uh it 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 was affecting me and so i said i'm i'm not gonna do this this was kind of in 2012 and i i i looked around and there was this new thing there was there was bitcoin there was cryptocurrency it was becoming a thing around this time my father had retired from ibm so we thought well other people are making money doing this we know how to run servers we're techie we can set up a a little little data center buy some land we can we can make money at this so we did and I did that from 2012 to, to 2018. We never became millionaires, but we kept money on the table and uh, made a career of it and never lost money. So I was, I was pretty proud of that. And it was around 2018 that I met, through my best friend, uh, I met Alvar and Abed, who, who were the founders of Fable. And this was like, you know, Fable was, was just sort of a gleam in, in their eyes. And the vision that they had of how accessibility should be better and how people with disabilities should be involved in digital accessibility and the real vision they had for making this happen was so obvious to me it was just like oh why doesn't this exist and i immediately was like yeah this is this is what i want to be involved in to be bringing this to life and so like b- before there was a fable i was fable's first first screen reader tester right and then moved from that into into community management 
here at Fable, which which involved, uh, you know, growing and building and supporting and scaling uh, the community of of people with disabilities that we work with every day and the power of everything that we do at Fable. And so I came into advocacy not from a like, you know, I want to be out on the picket lines protesting or, you know, the world is terrible. I want to I want to burn it down. But I, I came to it really from, you know, bringing my own experiences of things to a company and an, an organization that I had an that had an obvious vision. And that was a thing that I wanted to help bring into the world. The other place that I went as the community manager at Fable is as, as working with our community of people with disabilities and building it and growing it. I started attending accessibility conferences and I started doing a little bit of speaking on behalf of Fable. And I just felt very strongly that if you go to an accessibility conference today, you will find that a lot of the time, 95% of the speakers are people without disabilities, right? They're mm -hmm. people who are, you know, work in the space, who are great allies. And I don't want to minimize the importance of allyship because everyone doing their part and, and bringing their expertise is crucial. But like at the same time, if you went to a, a women in tech conference and 80% of the speakers were men, you'd be like, this is a bad conference, <laughs> right? Like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so it really occurred to me that what we have to do is, is we need the voices of people with, with disabilities represented in, in this space. And so I moved over to being the accessibility evangelist, to, to doing this, to putting the voices of people with disabilities front and center in, in Fable's marketing, in our speaking, in our events, and, and really making sure that happens. And, you know, we've seen a real change. There's, there's still work to be done, but we're seeing more and more people with disabilities actually speaking in the accessibility conferences. And not only that, we're starting to see accessibility come into other spaces, right? I go to a lot of, oddly enough, uh, design conferences, and I talk to a lot of designers. I talk to a lot of user experience researchers. I talk to product managers because accessibility is part and parcel of all of those things. And it's really important to me and exciting to me that we're no longer just accessibility professionals talking to other accessibility professionals and sort of preaching to the choir in that way, right? Fable has done a very good job of getting not only conversations about accessibility, but the voices of people with disabilities out into other spaces and other conversations that, that we need to be part of and, and we're, what, that we need to be in. And that was a long answer. I apologize. <laughs> Sam, as you're talking about your experience and that journey, I can't help but reflect on the two-part episodes with your father and him talking about answering similarly how growing up and when he became a, an adult and professional, he was not particularly interested in advocacy outside of what was going to help improve his situation. When professionally, he wasn't... Mm -hmm interested in being enmeshed perhaps within the disability community. He didn't, it didn't sound like he really wanted to be around other mm -hmm. people who were blind. He really did not. He wanted to be sort of out there as he, I think as he put it with the rest of society. Yeah. How much of his experience and the approach he took, how much of that does that resonate with you? And when you saw that growing up, how much did you think to yourself, oh, you know what? I want to do this a little bit differently. Some of it certainly did resonate. Things were obviously a little little bit different in the 70s and 80s, right? Because the internet wasn't a thing. 
And so what tended to happen is, right, you had the blind school for the blind people, and then you had like, you know, accessible housing where all the people with disabilities would live. And so it was kind of this tension of like, well, if you're, if you're, if you're doing this, you might find yourself almost ghettoized in, in a way mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. that my father didn't want. But what happened for me is that because of the internet, I get to have the best of both worlds, right? I get to network with and, and hang out with and talk to luminaries who are people with disabilities in, in the space online, whether it's on, on Twitter or Discord or, you know, wherever folks hang out. And then in the offline world, I get to have friendships with, with people who, who are not blind and, and I get to be part of teams that are not just, you know, it's not just all people with disabilities all, all the time. And so I think today we have a real opportunity in the way that we didn't have before to build communities and to connect with one another as people with disabilities and to be proud of that part of our identities without that meaning that we're living the disability lifestyle or like not no longer part of of kind of broader society. And it took me, I think, a little a little while to sort of see that and and to realize that and to to get that as as a teenager. But I think it's important. I think the main thing that I took from my father's approach is that protesting is great and is and is wonderful. And I don't want to minimize any of the work that protesters have have done and that advocates have done because it's incredibly important. But for me, I need to be advocating for things instead of advocating against things. And that's the approach here at Fable, and and that's what works for me. And so, you know, I don't find myself going around protesting about inaccessible things, right? I find myself advocating for how we can make things more accessible and how we can build it better and how we can solve the problems. And there are a lot of folks who, who are doing that. But I think there's this impression, right, that advocacy and that protesting is all about being against things and and being angry and it doesn't have to to be that way and i think in a lot of ways today it isn't and i think i'm incredibly lucky and privileged that it that it is that way right that i that i don't have to advocate just to to get medical care or or just to get access to the capitol building in in ways that my predecessors in the disability space maybe did to me, what you're talking about really echoes what I would say is like a very pluralist approach that sometimes we can get stuck in presuming that the approach we take is the one that everyone should take for advocating for a more accessible, inclusive world. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that we need people in a lot of different avenues doing a lot of different things. Maybe that's protesting. Maybe that's mm-hmm. building new technologies. Maybe that's storytelling. Maybe that's podcasting. Maybe that's mm-hmm a whole host of things that there's just so, so many ways in which each of us can find a way to make a better world. And it doesn't have to be the same story for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we do need people who go out on, on the picket line and who link arms and who stand up and who say, no, the box stops here, right? This this won't happen. That's just not me, um, <laughs> you know, in, 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 a very, in a very real way. Um, and it takes... It, it takes an incredible amount of, of bravery and courage and heart and emotional fortitude to do that. And I admire the folks who do. But f- for me, I, I need to be 
solving problems and building forward and doing new solutions. So I support the folks who are who are out there who are doing that, who are who are holding the line and who are saying, you know, this far and no further and protesting inaccessibility and, and exclusion. But for me, I, I suppose I'm a I'm a speaker and a storyteller and a and a builder. And that's the way that I find I personally can make the greatest impact. Uh, perhaps not surprising to many people. I, I personally resonate with that. I think I resonate with the places I like to make changes through communications, through journalism, through podcasting, through interviews, you know, trying to lean on where I think I have developed strengths that can be of benefit to other people. And so I definitely resonate with your experience there. Yeah, but it is it is important that we that we have both and that we that we be trialing all, all of the different approaches. And you know, I think there is sometimes a feeling that oh, we tried this and it didn't work as well as we wanted to, or maybe it had some really bad un- unintended side effects. But that doesn't necessarily mean it was a failure, right? We hear sometimes about the ways that legislation didn't work and about the ways that WCAG or or some of these other things have maybe let us down or have not done all we wanted them to do, but they made things better and accessibility is iterative and it's a journey, right? And so even when I'm doing things, I'm, I'm very conscious of the things I'm doing could probably be better and are not perfect, but it's better to, to do something and to make some small improvement that everybody else can pick up and can iterate on than it is to sort of wait for the the perfect solution. Sam, I'm going to try and not heap too much praise on you, but that's another, just another thing in which I want to express my appreciation for, of what you and some of the other guests have presented on the show of, you talked about an iterative or experimental approach is trying to find out what works, what doesn't, as well as realizing and acknowledging ways in which maybe legislation has been imperfect, but still been progress, that there's not these ideal systems or ideal world that we occupy, that we kind of make do with what we have and trying to improve upon it. And I think sometimes when we get a little bit too idealistic, we end up becoming just stuck because we think, well, if it's not this all perfect system, I, I'm i not going to really work within it. And I appreciate what you've said of really trying to make do with what we have and just improving from there. Although even idealists and the dreamers, right? There is a tendency, I think maybe especially as people with disabilities, for to look at the world as it is and to say, well, this is the best it's ever going to get, right? Things things can't be better. How could things possibly be improved? I just have to settle. And I think there is so much room and and I admire so much the people who who say no we should be living in a world where everything is is perfect and and 100% accessible because you know i i think sometimes for me there's a there's this well it, it takes me 20 minutes online to do what someone else could do in 5 minutes but like oh well i mean i can do it so i should just settle right there's 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 that feeling sometimes and it's so valuable to to have that encouragement that like no we shouldn't we shouldn't be settling. We should be thinking these things and, and dreaming these dreams and pushing for this ideal world, even though all of the ways that we push for it will be flawed and imperfect. There's still that kind of, you know, sh- shining city on a hill that it's okay to want and desire and to, to dream about. 
Yeah, there that view, that sort of maybe we can call it like a status quo view is kind of I know it's kind of an easy way out for us to to just say, oh, this is how things are. Like it's been this way throughout most of history. Like why would it be any different? As a, an easy way for us to either sit on our laurels or even just not do something because we presume that the world can't change, that society is, as you said, kind of the best as it can get. And it's also an easy way for us to surrender to a kind of fear that breeds divisiveness. Because when you get thinking in this this way of like, well, you know, people with disabilities, like eventually we're going to have to settle. I mean, first of all, it denies the innovation that comes from accessibility, right? It denies the ways in which accessibility is is not just about us. It's about everyone. And it makes it better for everyone, whether you're a person with a disability or not. And secondly, it opens us up to a kind of divisiveness in that if I'm thinking small in this way, it becomes very easy for me to think that, oh, well, there's only a certain amount of resource that companies are going to spend on people with disabilities. So if there are captions, maybe they won't have enough money to do audio description, right? And so we as people with disabilities, as part of settling, we start settling for, well, this works for me. And and so it's good enough. And and we, we almost become afraid in a way to work with other members of the disability community and to say, well, I mean, captions are great, but also there should be audio description and there should be ASL interpretation and there should be all of these things because they make it better for everyone and because we're building a better world for all of society. And and we need to, to stop thinking in this limited way, you know what I mean, that encourages us to be divided up amongst ourselves. I mean, some of the most inspiring things about the ADA and, and some of these frameworks is that they included everyone, right? It wasn't just the deaf folks going out and, and protesting to get captions. It wasn't just the blind folks going out and protesting to get audio description. It wasn't just people with physical disabilities going out and protesting to get ramps. All of our successes have come when we've worked together and not let ourselves be divided up in that way and sort of assume that accessibility is a zero-sum game and there's a limited amount of accessibility improvement that's ever going to be made. And so we better make sure we get sort of our piece of it and that it works for us. Yeah, you raised this, I think, important point of, as you said, like getting out there. I think of, you know, as you said, we tend to often, once things work well enough for us, we kind of tend to stop there because we all mm -hmm. have somewhat limited views. And I think of how powerfully my worldview has been expanded when I think of close family and friends who live with very different disabilities who helped me to see ways in which a certain system or process was frustrating and not accessible for them. And it, it's this constant reminder of always learning and realizing, oh, yeah, someone else experiences the world differently than I do. I need mm -hmm. to listen and f find the ways in which I can stretch myself to be a little bit more empathetic. Yeah. And making sure that we are properly understanding that accessibility is always better for us, even if it's not solving. As a person with a disability, accessibility features aren't just better for everyone when they solve my needs, right? Uh, I mean, I mean, just the other day, I was looking for something really interesting that I'd heard on a podcast, and I went and searched the transcript because, like, I didn't have time to to listen to all seven episodes, and I couldn't remember which which episode it was in, right? And so, 
there's this tendency for me as someone who's who's blind to be oh podcasts are great for me like like why should I be be protesting and making sure that captions exist like podcasts are totally accessible for me so this isn't something I need to be involved in right and it's that lack of understanding of of the ways in which an inclusive world is is a better world and I think all of the luminaries and guests that we've had on this podcast get that and understand that and that's why they've been able to have the impact that they had. This causes me to reflect a little bit on my childhood. I have just some of the lessons I learned early on that my, my father was born without a left arm, mm. which was something I kind of just took for granted at times, but realized that there are certain things that he would try to do that when you live in society where it is presumed that everyone has two fully functioning arms, that there's a lot of designed products and situations that just did not work for him. And because he was my father, that opened me up to seeing a different world in which there was so much inaccessible to him that otherwise I would not have known of and I would have remained probably furthering the problem. That was just something I noticed as a small child. Yeah. And I mean, things that can be done one handed are things that are easier and better to do. Right. Like, right. Um, I just had the opportunity uh, to, to speak a couple of days ago with a, a gentleman named, named Billy Price, who is the, one of the founders of, of Billy's uh, footwear. And, and they make shoes that have a wraparound zipper so they can be unzipped from the back because he personally had trouble, you know, stuffing his foot into the heel and wanted a shoe that you could step into sort of, you know, heel first. And I mean, they just crossed the milestone of selling their millionth pair of shoes because it's, it's a thing that made it possible for him to put on his shoes that is useful to people with arthritis and to older folks and to children who need to get their shoes on and off quickly and to, to so many different folks that, you know, wouldn't identify as like people with disabilities. It's just a, a more useful sort of better way to do shoes, right? I do yeah. have a question for you, um, Sam. What, as you look at this first season of episodes, obviously we covered a lot of ground. What has been maybe the highlight for you? I, I mean, imagine interviewing your father was a big highlight, but mm. I would love to hear a couple of your favorite points in this season. Mm. I mean, everything that Yuta Trevorana says is, is always gold. If you haven't heard the two episodes featuring her, absolutely go back and give those some some real focused listening in my experience she has been has been thinking and saying and researching the things that i think and say she's just been doing it for decades from sort of the the academic lens right i feel like about half of what i say is just things that she said first remixed through the lens of of my lived experience as a person with a disability um so those are great uh second of all i i was not as familiar with the work of of laura kalbag as i perhaps should have been and so it's it's been really great to sort of familiarize myself with what she's doing and and the way that that the things that she's doing resonate both within and without the accessibility space, right? And in the way that like the the small web and empowering people and making things, you know, less dependent on big corporate and big tech is better for accessibility and is also better for for everyone sort of resonates so well with everything that I say. So uh it was it was great to be, you know, obviously I, I knew of her, but it was great to to become more familiar with her work and and the things, the great things that that she's doing. And it's it's also been really enlightening to me in the way that 
we have been so easy, easily able to draw that through line between physical accessibility in the 70s and, and digital accessibility today, right? Because I think sometimes we as a community, not just people with disabilities, but of, of all of us uh, in the accessibility industry, tend to think of this sort of firm line between like, oh, there's physical accessibility on one side and there's digital accessibility on, on the other side. And they have completely different requirements and completely different needs. And we work on them in completely different ways and we think about them differently. And that's really not true, right? Accessibility is is holistic. I've, I've been thinking about this a lot when it comes to the employment gap that people with disabilities experience, right? And how do we solve this problem? And it's become clear to me that like, well, we solve it in the same ways that we solve digital accessibility. It's by getting everyone together, by doing cross-team collaboration, by distributing responsibility, by changing culture, by building this into the way that people work. And yeah, I think I think the podcast has also done a great job of sort of sort of showing that through line that these problems and their solutions are maybe not as different as we sometimes tend to think they might be. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm wondering, as you talk about some of these highlights, what are some of the things that ended up getting cut or topics that you would have loved to have dug in a little bit deeper in season one? What do you feel like needs a little bit more airtime? Mm, super interesting question. One of the things that I think about a lot and talk about a lot outside the podcast is this kind of cycle of history. And the podcast, we've done a great job in season one covering that first cycle, right? Covering the ADA, covering early digital accessibility, covering the way that we got to where we are now and some of the problems with where we are now. But what is really interesting to me is that in gaming, in virtual reality, in augmented reality, in 3D interfaces, in AI, we're kind of seeing the cycle of history repeat again, just mm -hmm. perhaps maybe a little bit more rapidly. And what I think is, is, is interesting and what I hope that people reflect on, even though we didn't state it directly, is the ways in which we are repeating history and, and the ways in which that is good and the ways in which perhaps we need to break out of that cycle. Mm. Related to that, this notion of like repeating history, you know, people have varied views on how history, whether it can be cyclical, if the progress is linear, if it's two steps mm -hmm. forward, one step back. What do you generally have a, a view of history, especially for accessibility of being mostly linear? How does this circular view kind of fit in to those other questions? Mm. I don't know that it necessarily matters whether it's linear or whether it's cyclical or, or, or what it is. But what I think is happening is that we are losing some of the collective knowledge that has been developed in accessibility over the years because it hasn't been documented and studied and talked about in the same way that, I don't know, video game history is talked about, right? Oh. Or operating system history is talked about. And, uh, you know, I, I just saw a, um, a, a meme on, on, on Mastodon this morning that had said something along the lines of, uh, those who don't understand history are doomed to, I forget what, but I'm sure it's unpleasant. Uh, <laughs> you know, right? Like, and so I think whether it's, whether it's linear, whether it's one step forward, whether it's two steps back, it's so important 
for us to really engage with and do what this podcast has has done in understanding where we've come from and how we got here and the successes that we had along the way and the mistakes that were made so that we can take that and and apply it to these new frontiers because the things that we've talked about about sort of you know the end of average and the way that we think about averages or the things that we've talked about in representation and all of these things are are going to matter again and if we're not raising up the next generation of of people with disabilities and of accessibility professionals to understand these things, we're going to make the same mistakes again, and we don't have to, right? I mean, how many people working in web accessibility today understand the decisions that IBM made with its screen reader and OS2 and which one of those were great decisions and which one of those were not great decisions and why? And if we don't understand that, when we go to implement a screen reader for virtual reality, we're going to of necessity have to make some of those mistakes again Mm -hmm. yeah as you as you talk about this notion of progress and whether it's you know whether it's linear cyclical or otherwise i think of i think of the nexus between technology accessibility and questions or issues related to environmental issues Mm -hmm. and climate change and i i bring this up because this is a question that's been in my mind a lot and i'd love to get a, a feel for your response to it but because there's obviously for the disability community, there's such a unique appreciation for technological advancements for making life much more accessible for people living with disabilities. And we've obviously got climate change and climate crises going on and things getting worse in a lot of different ways. And you've got a lot of people developing technologies, trying to become more renewable. And we have a society built around fossil fuels. And I, I even look at something such as moving to more battery-oriented technology, which seems like a step forward, but at the same time, there's definitely a certain degree of skepticism around the renewability of that, given how so much of what powers and makes batteries possible are these very rare minerals that are also dangerous and expensive to mine and also have ecological challenges. And just to name one, but like there's a lot of hope, a lot of tech optimism in the disability community but there's, I think, some good reasons to be skeptical that progress can remain linear. What worries or concerns do you have that as you look at these potential catastrophes down the line with progress not being guaranteed, how much do you worry that we won't continue to advance technologically or will sort of hit a wall because we can't shift away from fossil fuels or maybe culturally we sort of hit a wall and we no longer people don't choose to continue to advocate and make a more accessible society. How much are you worried about that? I think the two things are very intertwined. And my primary worry is that people won't understand that because if we aren't involving the voices and lived experiences of people with disabilities in the climate change fight, we will not succeed. First of all, because there is this tendency to think that, oh, the way we have to solve climate change is by making things worse for everyone. And the disability community has has learned over the years that like that kind of approach doesn't work. We need to change the way that we do things. And that doesn't necessarily involve making them worse. 
and it often involves making them better. If you look at, for example, how many renewable solutions turn out to be accessibility solutions, you find that to be the case. For example, smart thermostats, right? They do a lot of work making your heating more efficient and turning off Mm -hmm. your heating when you're away and making sure that when your furnace is on, right, you've got like three sensors on each floor so that the temperature is only, you know, controlled for the floors that you're on. And yet at the same time, smart thermostats are also the first time that I, as a person with a disability, have been able to set the temperature in my home or to know what temperature it was because more customizable and more adaptable solutions are always better solutions. I have smart lights throughout my office where I'm recording here, and it's a massive savings in power and efficiency, right? Because they're LED bulbs and and they can be automated. It's also just better for me because it's so nice for me to glance at my phone and, and, and hear with voiceover, oh, my lights are on. And it's also really great for me to be able to set an automation that turns off my lights because as someone who's blind and doesn't see them, you have no idea how many times I forgot the old fluorescent lights <laughs> on and we're just chewing power for no reason, right? right? But having those lights that automatically turn off when you leave the room is also better for you and it's an efficiency solution and it's, it's you know, this, this key to efficiency that we need to fight climate change in ways that make our lives better. If and when self-driving cars ever become a thing, how many of us are going to need a car? Because you can just order one to come for you whenever you want it, right? And so how much reduction in not only the environmental waste of every single person having a six-seater car in their mm-hmm. driveway that they have to drive to work every day, right? If we can stop that, we can have huge efficiency gains. But we can also make our lives better in that we don't have to pay to take the car into the mechanic once a month and to pay for the car insurance and to pay for the gas and to pay for that. Like owning a car is one of the most expensive things that you as a person who drives have to do, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's so expensive. And so if we can build a society that no longer requires every single person to own a six seater car, we've made things a lot better for you. And we've also made things a lot better for me. And so we've got to get rid of this idea that like, well, in order to fight climate change, what we have to do is lower everyone's quality of life. No, we don't. We have to do things differently. Yeah, we can move to to wind energy and we can move to solar. And if we're really strategic about the ways that we do this, eventually we can get to a place where we've lowered everyone's power bills, right? Mm -hmm. And in the same way that it's not useful in accessibility to talk about shame and like, oh, these poor people with disabilities, you should feel guilty and you should feel bad. It's not useful to have that conversation about the environment either, right? You personally should feel bad and guilty all of the time. It's it's not helpful and it's not useful. And And we in the disability community have learned how to have this conversation about making the strategic changes to the way that we live to build a better world that we also need to do in order to to stop climate change. And, and, and we can do that if we just get over like beating each other up and making each other feel bad <laughs> and move on to how can we do this better? Yeah, guilt and shame, or or specifically shame, as you put it, are not the most effective uh, motivators, uh, which which reminds me of a a question I was going to ask you earlier, which was both going to be a praise to, I think, how you communicate, but also a question about 
rhetoric and helping to convince others to be more inclusive and accessible in their design. One, you talk a lot about, I think a powerful piece of rhetoric is reminding everybody that whether you live with a disability right now or not, you are likely to at least experience temporary disability. And I think that's a powerful reminder to help bring other people into the conversation who otherwise might say, you know what? doesn't affect me. I'm not really going to think about it. So that's, I think that's one powerful rhetoric piece that I really appreciate that helps bring more of us, uh, I guess, into the fold. But I would love to hear, do you have other thoughts on what do you think are sort of powerful rhetoric or communication pieces that you found to help persuade other people of the importance of focusing on accessibility and digital inclusion? Mm. I mean, first of all, it's also getting people to understand how much of innovation is driven by accessibility, right? Whether it's voice dictation, whether it's text-to-speech, whether it's the electric toothbrush, whether it's, I mean, online shopping uh, premiered in the UK in the early 80s by Tesco as a way to help people who couldn't get out to the store to, to get their shopping, right? So much of accessibility is just innovation, is just finding newer, better ways to do things. And when companies really see how much inclusion is being directly driven by, by accessibility needs and how many accessibility products have become mainstream bestsellers, right? And have become things like dark mm -hmm. mode that we depend on every day. And I sometimes talk about, about the, the major players in the space, about the Microsofts and about the Apples. And it's very easy to demonstrate in a practical way how the things that they've done for accessibility have led directly to them having market-leading positions in other things. I think that's a, a wonderful sentiment and, and vision to kind of end on. Uh, Sam, any other territory you want to cover or can we uh, sort of roll toward the outro? I think we're good. You know, I'm I'm really excited to hear your interviews that you've done with all of our founding partners here at Inclusion Hub because all of them are doing the work, right? We've talked a lot mm. uh, in, in this episode about the importance of building and constructing and driving forward and, and being for things. And over the coming weeks, we're all going to get to hear from companies that are that are at the forefront of that and that are doing that you know in the current times so um absolutely encourage everyone to to stay tuned to keep listening you know maybe this this feels like an end of season one but it's it's really not um because this content is really important to understand the current landscape and how people are thinking about accessibility and what's going on right here and now well there it is Sam, thank you so, so much for all of your time, your important voice, the heart you've brought to season one, to this entire project. On behalf of all the listeners, everyone at Mori Creative and our other founding partners, again, thank you so much. Salesforce, hey. Mori Creative Studios, Fable, Be My Eyes. Can you take us out? Yeah, great to be here. And looking forward to the next episodes that I didn't have a hand in making and getting to listen to those just like everyone else. As I always say, a more accessible and inclusive world is a better world. <laughs>